All right, so we are uh, covering this part of the creed. Uh, he descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we might be able to make all four of these moves. Sometimes I get uh, a little overly optimistic about what I can accomplish. It's like on uh, Saturdays when I have to mow the lawn and Lauren is wanting me to take care of the kids uh, instead of going out by myself in the yard. And she's like, how long would that take you? And I always underestimate. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if I can get through all this today or we can get through all this. Uh, I've been reading through Second Timothy randomly, uh, kind of going through the pastorals. And I was really encouraged by reading Second Timothy as Paul is, is uh, calling on Timothy to continue to pass down the tradition, pass down the faith that you've been taught. Uh, and I thought that's, that's what we're doing in this class is coming back to those central things, passing down the faith, reminding us of what we know, uh, and centering us accordingly. So um, we'll start with one of the strangest lines in the Apostles' Creed, and one that I'm not even going to pretend to say that I have any sort of real expertise on. I know some things about it, but uh, I don't know that anyone knows exactly uh, all the all the nuances of this. But this line, he descended to the dead. Um, there is a little bit of a biblical um, case for this. So, for instance, in, uh, in 1 Peter, so 1 Peter 3, I can read this to you. Uh, this probably isn't one of those that you have uh, written on a sticky note and put on your mirror. But we get, uh, for instance, 1 Peter 3, 18 and uh, 19, Christ himself suffered on account of sins once for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you in the presence of God. And here we are in verse 19, it was by the spirit that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. Uh, who are these spirits that are in prison? It's quite debated. And then if we jump down to force, uh, verse 5, they will have to reckon with the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, this is the reason the good news was also preached to the dead. Okay, kind of strange there. Exactly what First Peter is talking about. Uh, uh, spirits in prison and good news being preached to the dead. Or in Ephesians 4, uh, 8 through 10, I think I just read in preparation for this, I think it was N.T. Wright who said, verse 9 is one of the most confusing verses in this. So, here is, uh, I'll start back with verse 8. That's why scripture said, when he climbed up to the heights, he captured prisoners and he gave gifts to the people. What does the phrase he climbed up mean if it doesn't mean that he had first gone down into the lower regions, the earth? Why would he say this as though it's so obvious when I have no idea what he's talking about? What does it mean if it doesn't mean that he had first gone into, down into the lower regions, which can either mean the lower regions of the earth or the lower regions which is the earth? So, if you thought, I hope Josh is going to explain what uh, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3 mean, I don't know. Um, in fact, there are all kinds of theories, and it's really hard to know because it just kind of plops it in there and then moves on uh, without enough context to really figure out exactly uh, what is meant uh, by him preaching to the dead or going to the spirits uh, in prison uh, who have died. Or I, Anyway, I won't go into too many of the weird details. Um, but you get this line that shows up in the creed, uh, and it's seen, at least by many, as important. I would say of all the lines in the Creed, and the Apostles' Creed, this one is probably least central. And the reason I say that is because it's only got kind of vague-ish biblical support. And then the other primary creed of the early church is the Nicene Creed, and it's not included in there. So 
this is my way of saying, let's not get hung up on this. Um, what might it tell us? Why might those who uh, pass down this rule of faith, this Apostles' Creed, uh, have included this? I'll give you three reasons why this might be relevant. Alistair McGrath, a theologian um, from Oxford, I believe, uh, says, uh, this line in the creed is a way of making clear that Jesus really did die. It's not as though he appeared to die, uh, but he really did die. He went to the dead. Um, Later, the, the Greek here, let me get a good marker. I think the earliest translations we get are, he went to Hades, which often gets translated the dead, maybe like the waiting place of the dead. Later on, I think in the Latin translation, um, it gets translated um, as hell. So you may have heard Jesus went to hell when he died. But that seems to be a mistranslation. Uh, it doesn't seem to be implied in Scripture, um, and it doesn't seem to represent the creed. So it's not that Jesus went to hell where maybe God is particularly absent, uh, but he went to uh, the waiting place of death. Jesus really did die. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson says, this line in the creed uh, points to Jesus' universal and cosmic victory. And here he's saying, uh, if Jesus in some sense, went to the dead and preached the good news uh, that his crucifixion has relevance not only for those uh, who live after the crucifixion, but also in some mysterious way to those who died prior to the crucifixion. So his victory over death can go backwards. So um, one uh, author compared it to Narnia. Uh, you guys got to love Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Aslan rises alive again after he's killed on the stone table, what does he do? But he goes to those statues that have been uh, turned to stone, and he breathes on them, and they come back to life. So you get this little glimpse in Narnia of how uh, death has not only been defeated going forward, but in some ways going backwards as well. Uh, and then Michael Byrd, a New Testament uh, biblical scholar, uh, ties this into Revelation 118, where uh, the risen Jesus sees John and says, Behold, uh, I hold the keys of uh, death uh, and the grave. Um, and so he ties this descent into something like uh, pointing to Jesus' victory. He went down, proclaimed victory over death and the grave. So I think there's relevance to this. The details, though, I don't know if anyone has figured out. I'm afraid to go into it today because I think the details on these are more essential, the kind of Second Timothy stuff that we should uh, sink our teeth in. Um, but it is confusing. Matt has a little bit, and then I'll go to... Do you have a little on the, the history of this? Is that right? Yeah, tell us a few things about that, and then let's open it up to... Okay. The, the only reason I know anything about this, just to be clear as a way of disclaimer, is that when I did my master's thesis, I did a, a translation of an obscure Anglo-Saxon poem called The Harrowing of Hell. I had no idea what it was about, so I had to find out. And what it's about, The Harrowing of Hell, is about this tradition as it developed in the medieval church. Here's a way to think about this line. If Christ is fully human, then he really had to die. He had to experience everything that every human had to experience. And the way people thought about death in the early Middle Ages in the Christian church was a lot like the way people thought about death in pre-Christian times. There was a kingdom of the dead where dead souls go. And so the idea was, how do we answer this question? 
If Christ was crucified and died on Friday afternoon and spent all day Holy Saturday in the tomb and didn't show up again until resurrection on Easter morning, where was he? If he was truly dead and he truly died, where did he go? This is the this is the tradition. I'm not this is this is not biblical, except there are a few little verses here and there that could be sort of pieced together to suggest maybe this is what happened. That was enough for the medieval church to work with. It was enough for somebody to write something called the Gospel of Nicodemus to back it up, which was a really popular text in early medieval Europe, although it was later uh, pretty quickly understood to be completely um, apocryphal. But here's the logic. Christ really died. Like every other human, his soul descended to the kingdom of the dead. But unlike every other human, when he got to the gates of hell, instead of being taken in and imprisoned, he tore the gates up. He tore the bars open. He chained Satan into the pit of his own dungeon. And he rescued all those Old Testament faithful people that we used to ask questions about in second grade. So if, if Moses wasn't a Christian, did he go to heaven? He wasn't baptized. Because you don't really count the little thing in the river. Because <laughs> right, he, did, he didn't go all the way under, right? So I'm, I'm being facetious. But, but it answered another important question. What about all those who heard the promise and died before Christ came? Are they stuck in hell forever? The answer was no. There's a divine justice at work. And this story makes it all make sense. The Christ harrowed hell. A harrow is an, a, a farm implement. You can drag it through a field and it'll pull out all the rocks and leave all the dirt. Christ went to hell, rescued the faithful remnant, took them with him to paradise, <coughs> rose to the heights. And once his work was done, by defeating death in death's own kingdom forever, then he came back to earth, rose from the dead. In other words, it, that was the church's way of logically explaining, uh, dramatically explaining, it's that dramatic logic again, of, of, of what must have been true if Christ is fully human and truly died based on what people believed happened to the dead. This was the way the church squared Divine justice with divine law. Those who die outside the faith can't go to heaven. Moses, David, Elijah, pick a prophet, died unbaptized, so they couldn't go to heaven. It's not fair that they are locked out forever. So the, the tradition of the harrowing of hell is an answer to that puzzling question. It was a really popular story, right? It, it really works in, in service of a truly human Christ and a truly just God. Right? It's even referred to in Dante's Inferno. It's one of the questions Dante the Pilgrim asks um, when he goes to hell and says, did, it, did anybody ever get rescued from this place? And his guide, Virgil, says, uh, only one time. Somebody came down here and tore everything up. That's why everything's a mess down here. And he took a few people with him, but the rest of us, we're stuck here forever. No one ever leaves this place now. So that's what I know about the, the harrowing of hell.
Alright, Hilton, you have a... Well, I, I just choose to be optimistic about it. I, I think the picture in Luke 16, we know there's a there's a difference. You've got the rich man in, in torment, you've got Lazarus in a place of comfort. But I, and this is before Jesus was crucified. But Jesus did visit the place of the dead to perhaps offer opportunity to everyone who missed, missed out. And uh, as, a, as another time of rescue. So, I, you know, his spirit didn't die. His body did his spirit is alive and well and taking care of business. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's fascinating. And that's that was really that was really fascinating to, to hear how I tried to make sense of this. Uh, yeah, somehow it's made right, but the details Yeah. Yeah, we get we get some fun speculation maybe. Let me jump up here first. Yeah. So so this is exactly why the Latter day Saints practice baptism for the dead. Oh, okay. So in constantly 24 hours a day in the morning temples. Someone is being baptized, and this is why they do genealogy. So they oh, the genealogy and the baptism of the dead, okay. Because the, you know, the idea is you cannot be saved unless you're baptized. So people are baptized by proxy. Oh, baptized by proxy, okay. Yeah. Speaking of baptism, you know, that day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday in the church is called Holy Saturday. In the medieval church, that was baptizing day when medieval Europe was being converted into Christianity. That that was the day that the church chose to do its its big baptisms because that's the day Christ died. That's the day converts symbolically die through baptism to rise in the church. It's also the one day in the year when the medieval church was totally dark. At the end of the mass on Friday night, good Friday night, all of the candles in the churches were extinguished. And the church remained dark all day on Saturday. And at dawn on Easter Sunday morning, they lit the Paschal candle, which is usually a big three or four foot tall these white candle, and, lit, and then lit every other candle in the church from it so that the church sanctuary was, was once again filled with light. It's a way of symbolizing that, that Christ has been raised from the dead, this is resurrection. But only Saturday used to be a really important day in the church. And superstition, it was a dangerous day. That's the day Christ is dead. That's the day <laughs> the devils and the demons think they've won. So be careful in the dark. Uh, they're running loose. Uh, that's, it's so fun to have you in here, Matt. Uh, <laughs> was there another question? I mean, lots of questions. But. Another point about that is often the Paschal candle is lit from a, a, a big uh, fire is set right at the door of the church or sometimes inside the church. And it's the only time you ever do this. You, you make a big fire, and then you take this huge candle and you dip it down into the flame, which for us is really powerful. It means you're hell. You can think of like a, a lake hmm. of fire, and then out of the, the fire comes this, the, the light of Christ, which is, I think, a really cool image that... Yeah. Kind of sends shivers down your spine, especially when you think about the harrowing of balance, this victorious moment that we don't always experience day to day. But the, the really dramatic light to dark is a, a really cool moment. Yeah, cool. Um, well, fortunately, doesn't stay uh, descended to the dead on the third day. Uh, he rose again. So resurrection. This is kind of the uh, cornerstone of Christian faith. Uh, without the resurrection. Um, Christianity just simply doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Um, so Paul can say, without the resurrection, our faith is worthless. 
so it's about as blunt as it gets. No resurrection, no Christianity. Um, for Paul, uh, particularly you see this like in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to just read a chapter where Paul says, here is why we cannot give up on the resurrection, uh, even though it's going against the cultural norms. It's weird to the Jewish world because not every Jew is expecting resurrection, and those Jews who were expecting resurrection were only expecting it at the end of time. No one was expecting a resurrected Messiah. So it's foolishness to the Jews. It was a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Jews don't want this. It is foolishness to the Greeks because when you die, you turn to dirt. You do not rise again. And yet what Paul is saying is despite the pressure you're feeling to deny the resurrection of Jesus, even though it doesn't make sense and whatever religious or cultural thing you come from, we have to hold on to this as Christians. If not, our faith is worthless. Without the resurrection, you have no hope that your sins are forgiven because all you're believing in is some guy got killed on a cross. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't defeat sin and death. He simply died. The death of one mortal doesn't fix the sin problem. You want to have hope of your own resurrection? That is grounded in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead for Paul. We cannot give up on this. You want to believe that Jesus wasn't some common criminal or some would-be Messiah? Well, the only real um, powerful reason to believe that is the resurrection. Jesus was not the only person who claimed to be the Messiah in that time. There were other would-be Messiahs uh, who people proclaimed as king. Uh, I think Simon Bar Kokhba was one of the last ones. Um, and a lot of these guys were killed because they were kind of uh, raising up against the Roman Empire, trying to get some Jewish independence, and then they get killed. But none of their followers said, oh, they rose from the dead. Um, but Christians do. Um, not only that, but for Paul, it's not you just got to believe this so it fits together, but, but as he's teaching them in 1 Corinthians, Jesus, I think the, the exact language is something like, Jesus for us is wisdom from God. Jesus is wisdom from God. Jesus shows us that, that ultimate um, victory comes through this humble, sacrificial love. How are wrongs ultimately made right? It's the way of the cross. So we get in Luke, whoever wants to come after me or must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the path of wisdom. If Jesus is crucified on the cross and that's the end of him, uh, then it might suggest that the way of the cross is not the way of wisdom, not the way to make things right. If he does rise from the dead, then that tells all of us who are part of the way, of the way of Christ, that carrying our cross and following him, even if it might lead to persecution or suffering or death, is ultimately the wise path of life because it is the way where sin and death have been defeated. And so we follow our Messiah, our King, uh, along those lines. Um, so this fits into the biblical plot line that we looked at last semester. Creation was made good. Things got messed up. Uh, and then with the resurrection, we see this, this glimmer, uh, the kind of first fruits, I think is the language we get, first fruits of things being restored. God does not uh, look down on his broken creation and say, uh, I'm done, I'm just going to deal with spirits from now on. It's going to blow away the material world and we're just going to be uh, immaterial from now on. But, but the resurrection is the first fruits of new creation, of, of sin and death and the kind of cancer that they are being taken away and a new mode of existence uh, coming into the world. And that's our hope that things will be made right. Um, I, I said a little bit about how Jews weren't expecting 
the resurrection of Messiah. Greeks weren't expecting a resurrection. Christians were, were walking this unique position. The only ones who think that one person rose from the dead ahead of the resurrection of all the dead. So it's not like Jewish people, it's not like Greeks. Um, and this becomes a reason uh, N.T. Wright wrote like a 700-some page book on the resurrection of Jesus where he says, there is good, solid historical reason to believe in the resurrection. You cannot prove the resurrection because it's not like you can run some sort of science experiment or look back in time. But there is solid historical reason to believe in the resurrection. Part of that uh, belief uh, comes from this recognition that, that what the apostles are claiming was something that no one was claiming. So, N.T. Wright says something along the lines of, if you're going to make up a story as a first century Jew, this is not the story you would fabricate. If you're going to make up a story, you're going to make up a story about how maybe you saw the spirit of Jesus resurrected. Everyone can get behind that. Um, but you don't make up a story about a real bodily resurrection because almost no one except one sect of Jews, the Pharisees, believed it. And even they didn't expect a resurrected Messiah. Wrong story to make up. It's appealing to nobody. Not only do they say this is what happened, but they are claiming, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people saw this. If you're going to make up something and you're going to have to fabricate eyewitnesses, you don't want to fabricate 500 eyewitnesses who believe something that no one was expecting to see. And yet, that's what he's claiming. If you're going to make up something, you're not going to make up something that no one's expecting that's going to require this many witnesses and an empty tomb. Right? You're going to fabricate, you saw the spirit. Yeah, his body's in the tomb, doesn't matter, all that's raised is a spirit. But no, they claim they, this only makes sense if there's an empty tomb. If there wasn't an empty tomb, if his body was in there, all someone had to do is say, nope, here's your Messiah, and the movement's done. So it's a terrible story to make up because no one was expecting it. You have to somehow fabricate an empty tomb, and you have to get people to believe they all saw the same thing. Um, all, all so you can be a weirdo in your culture and be persecuted. There's just nothing uh, to gain from this. So we cannot prove the resurrection, but there is at least solid reason to believe that there was an empty tomb, uh, and that something happened that led these apostles who abandoned Jesus to be willing to die for him. Can't prove it, but you can say there's something you can sink your teeth into here. Uh, this isn't just, um, there's something more than a legend behind this. Something happened, maybe it wasn't the resurrection, uh, maybe it was, but some sort of historical event happened that was led to these unprecedented beliefs uh, that people were willing to die for, and that shaped a movement that continues to impact the world. Um, questions? Comments? I like this stuff. So this stuff matters. It's good. Yeah? Was there any, was there any time in the right when Jesus was risen, was there a... Um, I'm trying to hard to formulate this, but I guess there's a there's is a movement of where people believe, but was there ever a dip where people were like, man, that's probably not really true, and in a research, or was it always just a explosion of people believing? I this is where it's helpful to have Lauren uh, here to tell me the to tell us the history. It's from what I can tell, it seems as though there's there's always this pressure to abandon certain weird beliefs. So we see this with the heresies, you know, denying that Jesus was really God, denying he was really human, denying that he really rose from the dead. I don't know 
Uh, I think Larry Hurtado talks about the incredibly rapid growth of Christianity in the first three centuries when it was either deviant or or sporadically persecuted was just incredible, the explosive rate uh, of Christianity. But I don't know the, the details beyond that, though. Yeah? I think uh, one of the big things that persecuted the church and denied the resurrection of Christ early on was that it implied our resurrection. Mm-hmm. And the Greek world easily believed in the idea that we would all go to heaven or something like that, but not that idea that we would be God. And so it's really interesting you get very early on a lot of effort to explain in scientific terms how bodies could come back from the dead. Hmm. And so early Christian writers are trying to make this argument this is a, you know, a plausible thing to expect in our future. Oh, interesting. So they, so they're committed to it, and they try to show scientific, yeah. huh? It's, that's very different than how we typically think. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, I think it was Michael Bird who said, "We might think of like, how do we make sense of the resurrection of our bodies today? It's, it's, there's no perfect way to do it. Um, but he said one way to think about it, since I mean, we do become dust, and my dust may end up becoming, you know, someone's future, you know, body, uh, the way this stuff works. Uh, and he said, something like every, someone here knows maybe this better than I do, but every seven or eight years, we essentially have gone through and recycled uh, all of our, the cells in our body. And yet, you know, as our body, you know, skin cells die and reform, our stomachs or something do it every day. I don't know the exact details, but it's something like every seven years. <laughs> You know, our bodies just kind of renew themselves uh, in, in the, the total seven-year period. Except for the arthritic <laughs> joints, yeah. And he says, yeah, we remain the same person. So in some sense, that might give us an analogy of how we might have this kind of thing happening in our bodies, and yet we stay the same, uh, even if, you know, what's making my skin cells today is going to be what's, you know, something different is going to be making up those skin cells later. Maybe that's an, a small kind of window into how God can resurrect our bodies. We'll still have flesh and bone. It'll still be us, even if it, won't, it might not be the same, you know, dirt that uh, makes us now. I don't know. I don't know the details. I figure God can, can sort it out. Uh, Matt, do you have anything before we go into the ascension? God, I think this just reminds us of one of those topics we mentioned in here, which is the the role that mystery plays in Christian faith. Mm-hmm. We're not comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we can explain explanations, but ultimately some things are beyond our ability to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's also something that's been central to Christian orthodoxy is that mm-hmm. as hard as we try to explain everything, there's a point at which our explanations will fail, especially the closer it gets to who God is and how mm-hmm. he works. Um, that, that That's just one of those awkward moments for those of us who grew up in a very rationalized yeah. version of Christianity. Uh, which is all the more reason why we need to understand, like, these are the things that, that hold the Christian faith together. Resurrection, we can't fully understand it. But if we say, therefore, it's optional, we have just kind of pulled out one of the main you know, pieces of uh, uh, foundation. Um, you know, there's one more thing that might be worth saying, and that has to do with our notions of truth. Um, in, in, a, in a pre-scientific world, truth is what is believed, 
truth is what has been believed by the most people and it makes the most sense. In a pre-scientific world, that's as good as you can get. In a post-scientific world, we have a, we've developed a different definition of truth, which is positivistic, <laughs> evidence-based, you can't reproduce it, reproduce it or weigh it or measure it, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the criteria are for science. And you can't say it's true because it's a very objectivist, objectified notion of, mm -hmm. of materialistic truth. I think sometimes, for us, we get caught between those two different notions of truth. The scientific notion, how old are you? Show me your birth certificate, otherwise I won't believe you. Or the other older notion, which is when you ask your spouse, will you be true to me? That's a different notion of truth. We all, we all understand that. Your, your true love is not the one who can document. It's, it's the one who's faithful and loyal and hmm. does what they say. And I think sometimes when we approach the mysteries of the faith, we start to lean really hard on our scientific backgrounds and asks for kinds of proof that are simply impossible to provide. And the risk is, if we only use that standard of truth, then there's a lot that we just can't believe. Christians, on the other hand, have believed in the absence of scientific positivism for centuries and centuries. What they believe to be true is what they know to be true. And what they know to be true, as they say in the New Testament over and over again, is we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, we saw him die, and we saw him live again, and we saw him rise. That's the truth, because we saw it. It's a different kind of truth. But both of those, I think, are important for us to understand. Okay. You may have overestimated science, because even my birth certificate is just a testimony of witnesses. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there has been. The, the next move has been realizing that even our science is not objective. Uh, yeah, quantum physics, as I understand it, has kind of thrown all that stuff uh, up in the air, and so now it's, truth is whatever I feel like it is. You know, you've got, we've got this, even in our culture now, you've got the positivistic, positivistic to the relativistic, and then we're all in the same church together, um, trying to figure out, you know, we're talking past each other. I have some language that could maybe help yeah. a little bit from a science perspective, so... Don't confuse uh, truth and fact. So things can be equally truthful and non-factual. Like the prodigal son, for mm -hmm. example. Like that story has uh, immense amounts of truth within the story, but they were not factual. Um, and so another element of truth can be experiential truth. Right, so when you're experiencing like mystical types of things, right, like you can't prove that they happen. Uh, we can't prove gravity, right, but we know that it's here um, because we experience it. So there's a truth to gravity that we can't prove as fact. Well, we talk about that in literature true, that, too, that, that fiction can be truer than history, right? You know, mm -hmm. and it, it sounds like a paradox, but we all sort of know what that means. Yes. Yeah. Why could what? Jesus raised people from the dead. He healed people from the audience. Mm-hmm. 
So, yes, this thing blows right in my ear, but I think I heard you. So, uh, the part of the reason that we might believe that Jesus can be raised from the dead is because he raised others from the dead. Um, I think that is, you know, a piece of the evidence. Something unique, and maybe this is, this is where we're kind of getting to here, is when Jesus raises from the dead, he doesn't raise again in a corruptible body. So he raised people who would then die again. Um, but he was resurrected in a new kind of incorruptible body. So it's like what you pointed to is, you know, there's reason to believe this, um, but there is something new and different as well about this resurrection, which really ties in nicely then to the ascension. Uh, and Lauren, uh, as I listened on the, um, on the recording, she mentioned this, this um, probably something that many of us have never considered, but Jesus didn't ascend as a spirit and leave the shell of his body behind, but he ascended as a resurrected material body somehow to heaven, wherever heaven is, however that works, uh, but Jesus ascended as a body uh, that is no longer subject to sin and death and that is capable of dwelling with God where God is. Um, I think C.S. Lewis says, if the story is true of the ascension, then a wholly new mode of being has arisen in the universe. So part of our hope as Christians is not that we will rise from the dead to die again, but that we, be, we will be raised in a new kind of incorruptible body. This is going back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, a body that is renewed by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. Not a spirit body as in we're ghostly, but a capital S spiritually uh, animated, renewed body uh, that is physical and yet better than our current bodies. Um, and uh, these new bodies will not be subject to sin and death, uh, and the, the vision that we get, and we've talked about this some last semester, some with the resurrection, but the vision is that heaven is coming down. That's kind of the best language we can get. Uh, and we'll like overlap earth. Restored earth and heaven will have this kind of overlapping um, uh, I don't know, existence uh, where God will dwell with his people. There will be no more temple because God will be with his people. Um, and in this new reality, our current bodies aren't fit for it. What we need for this new heaven-on-earth reality uh, is heavenly earthly bodies. And that is what has been accomplished uh, by the resurrection. This is the first fruits. This is what Jesus made possible. And so we hope to be raised in this way. And if Jesus ascended, that is part of our belief that, yes, he can make us to have bodies that are capable of dwelling in heaven on earth. Maybe the ascension is the most underrated Christian doctrine. Um, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to go. And when, uh, on Wednesday night, we're going through a class mm-hmm. about the heaven and the earth. And so we're wrestling with a lot of the same ideas. But I, I believe in my experience, just historically, the church has been really good living in Friday mm-hmm. with crucifixion. And we kind of acknowledge that Sunday happens, resurrection. Mm-hmm. But we've done a very poor job, again, just me speaking explaining the hope that we have with that resurrection. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because it is something that we should spend more time on. Mm-hmm. If we're, as the church, are able to greater explain or uh, talk through our hope in the future of this type of resurrection we just talked about, to me that's 
as something that's very appealing to look forward to. I think as a church, we tend to focus either on today or all the things that have happened in the past, which are good to do as well. But it, it's that really compelling story of looking forward to the future and the creation that I think is a very powerful message of hope that people need to hear. And we're not doing a good enough job as a church telling that story. <coughs> I think we have forgotten how part of what makes Christianity distinct is the hope of Christianity. And if you remove resurrection, you've removed hope. If you remove this ascension, you may have removed hope as well, because the ascension is the, is the part of what holds together that Jesus' resurrected body is a body that is fit for heaven on earth. Otherwise, what happened to his, where did Jesus go? Where did his body go? Did it just die again? No, it the ascension is what tells us this resurrected body is a new thing. And so we Christians can spread hope to the world about uh, sin and death being defeated. And we can't just say, oh, optimistic hope that things will be good. Let's just, you know, hope. It's kind of wishy-washy hope. But, but this is our reason. These are our, the things that we are um, putting our faith, our hope in. The resurrection and the ascension. Um, you tell me why you have hope, I'll tell you why Christians have hope. Resurrection and the ascension. Uh, huge pieces to all this. The ascension um, vindicates Jesus as the rightful king, um, and it, it uh, shows him as, uh, as Lord and God. I'm probably running out of time here, aren't I? Um, so, for instance, in Psalm 110, you get this language of being at the right hand of the Father. So if you want to read later Psalm 110... This language of being at the right hand of the Father is um, language of like the Messiah or the King, uh, the one who rules. So the ascension shows Jesus' rightful rule. Um, and then in Hebrews, he picks up on this language of being at the right hand of the Father uh, and ties it into Jesus as the right intercessor or the great high priest, that Melchizedek kind of role. Um, and in Romans 8.34, if you want to look up something else, Paul says, the one who ascended who now intercedes for us. So... Not only did Jesus ascend as a body, but as a fully divine, fully human, uh, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We humans, the Father divine. Uh, we have a perfect intercessor there uh, who has ascended. This is some really good news. Uh, let me take a few comments, and then if we have time, I'll, do, uh, I'll speak on the judgment. If not, we'll, um, it's always nice to put off the judgment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the artistic depictions of the ascension to heaven are uh, body and mm-hmm. clouds and light. Uh, how helpful is that? Are those type depictions? Uh, and should we use those as a uh, visual frame or not? Well, you get that like in... Uh it's either the end of Luke or the beginning of Acts or both where Jesus goes up and then the clouds kind of into the clouds and they worship him. Um, C.S. Lewis at the end of his book, Miracles, talks some about the ascension. Um, I, the problem is, is that heaven is not up there, literally. Um, so either Jesus was accommodating to that ancient mindset where they thought of heaven up there and so he was, this movement was not him literally like shooting up into space to find God, but, but him uh, helping them to see, to grasp this idea that he's going to be with the Father. Um, and 
there is, the problem is there is no good picture because even today we're not we're not so you know so old school that we think of heaven as you know above the atmosphere but we don't have any way of understanding where heaven is now or or what the path is to get there you know like what we could think of being beamed up or something i don't know but but there is no perfect picture so every picture is going to be accommodated to our limited understanding of how one goes from earth to heaven uh, and so the ascension is one way of that fit the ancient mindset. I, I don't know what that means now. So I think it's all accommodation. Um, I saw, yes? Uh, two things. One, I know Randall's talked about uh, seated at the right hand, mm-hmm. or about completed, what's complete? So we seated, there's no more. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to me. And then, piggybacking on uh, Justin was saying, the Wednesday night class going through the Middleton book. Oh, that's good, yeah. I don't have any uh, citations or anything, but there is some discussion about meeting in the clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of like uh, prodigal son, mm-hmm. father going out to meet. So there was some some discussion. Yeah. So I'll end on that, and then we'll do the Apostles' Creed. So in First Thessalonians, it's either four or five. There is this language of us meeting the Lord in the air. So that language of meeting, the Greek word there shows up uh, two other times, I think, in the New Testament. Uh, and, and one is in the, um, what is it, the ten virgins with the lamp oil, and they go out and meet the bridegroom. Do they meet him and then depart? No, they meet him to welcome him in. And then another time, uh, the, uh, the church goes out to meet Paul and escort him back into the city. So the language of meeting the Lord in the air is the language of meeting him, meeting the rightful king to escort him to his proper place of rule on the earth. So it's not we're meeting to go away, but we're meeting to escort him back. Um, so that's why sometimes we get that, we think meeting in the air is we're gone. But no, this is his rightful rule. Heaven, the new Jerusalem, is coming down onto earth. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, if you want to read a book that does this well, Richard Middleton's New Heavens, New Earth is fantastic. Um, and he ties the whole story together. One of the best resources uh, I know. Well, let's um, let's say the creed. Um, so I got three out of four done. Um, so uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Thank you, Yes, thank you.